All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6 is where we're going to be. I know that's like your favorite book in the whole Bible. Um, and so if you're new to the Bible, Deuteronomy is actually going to be in the, in the Old Testament really early on. It's the fifth book in the Bible. So once you find Deuteronomy, go to chapter 6. Um, we've been in a series. We're in a five-week series called Together for the City. And what we're doing in this series is taking elements of our mission, which is multiplying gospel communities that love God, love people, and push back darkness. We're taking elements of our mission, and we're unpacking what we mean when we say multiplying gospel communities. What do we mean when we say love God? What do we mean when we say love people and push back darkness? So that's what we're doing in the series. Last week, we, we talked specifically about multiplying gospel communities, and today we're going to talk about loving God. Uh, before we jump in, not to pick at an old scab, but I was pretty bummed on the 4th of July to hear the news that Kevin Durant was leaving our city, leaving Oklahoma to join the Golden State Warriors. I don't think I'm alone in that because our entire city freaked out, right? Everybody went into an uproar. And in fact, at one point, there were more tweets on Twitter about Kevin Durant leaving Oklahoma than there were about the 4th of July. So just let that sink in for just a minute. Like freedom, independence, whatever. Katie's leaving. What good is freedom if we can't have him in our city? And, um, and, and just the amazing outrage. People were burning his jersey. People were freaking out. People were on Twitter cussing him out, taking old statements that he had made where he had talked about, man, I want to be in Oklahoma and live out my career here. I don't see myself being anywhere else. And they were reposting that and like, well, yeah, what about that? You know, and, and people are just really getting after it and their anger and frustration to him. Now, a couple things that I want to say about that. Uh, the first is, um, it's, it's amazing to me that Kevin Durant leaving Oklahoma was able to spark more emotion and anger than what was felt recently with the shootings that happened across our world, both, both of those in the African-American community and those of our police force in Dallas. It's just amazing to me that we were actually as a state capable of more anger and frustration about a, a, a guy playing a, a game with a ball than about lives that were taken so let that be just kind of a rebuke to us as a state. That's the first thing that was amazing. The second thing that was amazing to me was also all the people in our city that were asking the question, why? Why would he do that? Like, why would he leave our city? Why would he leave this place to go play for them? Of all people, I mean, he's built something here. He's established something here. Why would he do that? And what's so interesting about that question is that you and I actually know the answer to that question. We know why he left. Kevin Durant wants something, doesn't he? He wants a ring. He wants, he wants to experience what it's like to win the whole thing. Kevin Durant is driven by his desire. He has this picture in his head that he wants, and he's willing to do whatever it takes to get it. And here's what I'm trying to say. In short, Kevin Durant is human, and humans are good at taking what's in their heart, what they desire, and they point towards specific places, and then we go to the thing that we love, we go to the thing that we want, we go to the thing that we are longing for. And actually, here's what I would say to you as we think about loving God. Actually, we've been wired by God to love. 
We've been wired by God to desire. We've been wired by God to have this longing in our hearts for this good life that we picture. And I love the words of James K.A. Smith in a book he recently wrote called You Are What You Love. I recommend it to everybody. Get this book, James K.A. Smith, You Are What You Love. But listen to the way he defines humanity. He says this, to be human is to be animated and oriented by some vision of the good life some picture of what we think counts as flourishing. And we want that. We crave it. We desire it. This is why our most fundamental mode of orientation to the world is love. We are oriented by our longings, directed by our desires. We adopt ways of life that are indexed to such visions of the good life, not usually because we think through our options, but rather because some picture captures our imagination. And so here's what is being said, that you and I as humans, we, we've been created to love, we've been created to desire, we've been created to have this thing inside of us that craves the good life, and we're going to chase it down and do whatever it takes so that we can get the good life. Now, the good life will have different definitions of what that means. Might, mine might look different than your definition, but all of us have this image and picture of the good life, and we're chasing it down with vigor with everything inside of us. So here's what I want to unpack with you today. What have we been wired for as humans? What have we been created for? Like, why do we do the things that we do? Why do we experience the cravings that we experience? So what I wanna do quickly is just unpack three realities of human existence with you. Three realities of human existence. So if you're taking notes, here's the first reality that I want you to see. You and I were created to love worship, and desire God. You and I were created to love, worship, and desire God. Chapter six of Deuteronomy, look at verse four, and let's read this. Here's what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Verse six. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Let's just stop right there. So what is God telling us. He's saying, hey, I want you to love me. This is called the great commandment. And he says, I want you to love me. And not just as one of the things that you love, not just like I I love my spouse or I love my hobbies and I love ice cream and I love Jesus. He's not saying add me into the mix like that. He's saying, I actually want you from the depths of who you are, your soul, from your heart, the very essence of who you are, I want you to love me with everything inside of you. I want you to build your life around me. I want you to wrap your entire existence around me. I want you to love me and don't forget to love me. He's gonna go on to tell us like, talk about loving me when you wake up and talk about loving me when you're walking down the street and talk about loving me when you're hanging out with your family and talk about loving me just every day. Let it be, you know, doorposts on your house and things that you wear on your body that remind you to love me above everything else. Now, can we just be honest with each other for just a minute? Some of these commandments, in fact, 
This commandment in particular to love God is riddled all over the Bible. And oftentimes I think we view this as, man, God must be incredibly vain and very insecure that he would need our love and our affection so that he can feel good about himself. Maybe you don't articulate it that way, but there was certainly a time growing up where I would read commands like this, love God with your whole heart, love him above everything else. And it almost felt like God was this vain person that needed affirmation, needed my affection so that he could actually feel good about himself. Well, is that really what's going on? Is God insecure? Is he missing something that we can give him? Is he just so, so frail that he needs our affirmation to feel good about himself? Not at all. In fact, this command to love God, it's not primarily even for him and his sake as much as it's for us and our sake. Here's what I mean. God created you for him. He wired you to need him. He wired you to exist with him. He wired you so that your heart would love and pursue and crave and long and worship him. This is inside of us, and and we feel traces of this. We feel hints of this inside of our souls because all of us, we have this, this desire and this craving to experience beauty and transcendence and to stand in awe of something And that's because you and I were created to experience the goodness and power of God. Listen, this is why we pay a lot of money to go to concerts that are just really beautiful and amazing because there's something happens at a concert where we're reminded that there's a transcendent reality that is bigger than this world. There's something more important than myself here. And and we feel the weight of beauty and the weight of glory. That's why we pay so much money to go to concerts. This is why we go to movies in the movie theater rather than just renting them off of Netflix or something because there's something about being in a theater with really loud speakers and being amazed at cinematography and just absolutely blown away. We want that as people. This is why we pay money to ride roller coasters and be freaked out and kind of be reminded of our frailty as human beings because there's something in us that wants to feel weight and glory and beauty and feel our frailty as human beings. It's why we visit the Grand Canyon. It's why we swim in the ocean. It's why we climb mountains. It is why we do what we do. Let let me explain it to you this way. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, he says, God made us invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel of our spirits. Uh, Sorry, he, he himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself because it is not there. So here's what this first human reality that you need to grapple with and wrestle with is that every single person in this room was created by God to love God to long for him, to desire him. And the reason you do what you do and the reason you pursue what you pursue is because there's something inside of you that is longing to experience weight and beauty and eternity that's only found in God. So that's the first human reality. Here's the second human reality that I want you to see. 
we haven't loved God. So you and I, we're actually created to love God. We are created to desire him and to worship him. But the sad reality, and this is literally the story of the Bible, is that we have not loved God. If you're new to the Bible and you're wondering, what is this book about? It's really about this. Like God has created us for him, created us to love him, and we have not done that. Rather than loving him, we've loved the stuff that God has made. This is what the story of the Bible is about. And there's this verse in Jeremiah 2 that when I read it, it just feels like our culture to me. It feels like what we're seeing and experiencing all around us. So let me just read this verse, Jeremiah 2, verse 12. This is God speaking to his people. This is God speaking to us. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So this is what God is saying. He's saying, listen, I'm not mad at you that you're thirsty. I'm not mad at you that you have this desire. I'm not mad at you that you have this craving, but what is shocking and what makes angels in heaven hold their mouths and gasp is that you have rejected the fountain of living water, God, and you've run out into the wilderness and you've carved these wells that don't even hold any water. You're searching for joy and meaning and pleasure and identity and beauty and flourishing and the good life outside of God and all the stuff that he made. This is the story of humanity. We were created to love God, but we just haven't loved God. So here's what we do. We take things like food and drink, which are great gifts. I love a good glass of wine in moderation. I love a good steak. We take these really good gifts and we elevate them to the status of a God. And rather than enjoying God through the gift, we push God out and we instead lavish all of our affection and pursuit on food and on wine. And that doesn't lead to flourishing or more beauty. It leads to gluttony and drunkenness. We can't even enjoy the gifts properly. We take the gift of sex, which is a really good gift that God gave to his people. Could I get an amen from anybody? Like some of you felt really uncomfortable saying amen, right? You're like, amen, I don't know, right? Uh, That's actually a good gift that God created, right? Christians aren't prudes. We believe that God created the gift of sex. However, he gave it in very particular parameters, It's to be enjoyed in the context of a marriage, which defined biblically is one man and one woman that have made a covenant for their life together, right? So this is a good gift. But what we do is we say, God, we actually don't think you know much about pleasure. We don't think you know much about what it is to be human. So we're going to push you out. We're going to take the gift of sex. We're going to do it our way. We're going to find pleasure in the way that we want. And we're going to be the gods over this particular gift. Get away from us and stop telling me how to live. And it doesn't end well. It leads to more sexual brokenness, hurt, dissatisfaction, a loss of pleasure. We take various gifts like power and money and relationships, and we elevate all of these things. And what God is saying in Jeremiah 2 is, is, hey, angels in heaven, be appalled, be shocked, because the people that I made for me, the very way that they would get pleasure and joy and happiness, they've rejected me, the fountain of living water, and they're trying to find beauty and weight and glory outside of me. We haven't 
loved God. Now, here's the uh, interesting disconnect. I don't know if you've noticed this. Um, I feel this in my own heart, but there is a disconnect between what I believe and what is real. There is a disconnect oftentimes in what we believe and what is actual reality. Here's what I mean. Um, let's not even take all of Oklahoma. Let's just go frontline in our four congregations, South Shawnee, Edmond, here in uh, downtown South Oklahoma City. Let's, let's take, let's take uh, just the people that would call themselves Christians. And if I were to walk up to you and say, hey, do you love God? What do you think the response would be if I asked someone who considers himself to be a Christian? Yes, I do, right? Yes, I do. It would almost be a knee-jerk reaction, wouldn't it be? Like, do you love God? Yes, I'm a Christian. Christians love God. Of course I love God. I love God. But actually what's happening in Jeremiah, it's showing us that, that it's, not, it's not actual reality in our hearts to say that, yes, there are these other things that we love, but God is in there somewhere. What Jeremiah is trying to say is that when you have shifted your focus of desire and your craving and your longing and your way of defining the good life, that doesn't include God. It's no longer God that you love. It's these other things that you've lavished your love on. And very simply, and I don't want to kind of be reductionistic in our society, but let me just tell you very simply, there are really two ways that this can happen. You either love God with your whole heart and your soul and your might, or you love something else with your whole heart and your soul and your might. Listen, guys, the issue is not in our desire. It's in where the desire goes. So here's the question, and you don't have to answer out loud, but think, think with me. What is it that you love? Who is it that you love? What is it that you desire? In other words, who is your God? Your God is anything that observes, uh, absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Your God is whatever you look at and say in the depths of your soul, if I have that, then I'll feel that my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I'll have value. Then I'll feel significant. Your God is anything that becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, your meaning in life, and your identity. And when I answer those questions, what I'm realizing is that oftentimes, even though in my head I say I love God, my heart betrays me because my cravings and my desires run a thousand different places, oftentimes not to God. So can we just ask the question together, how is that working out for us? Because culture right now is trying to pull us away from loving God. There are people in our society that are saying, hey, Christianity is a straitjacket. Following the God of the Bible is restrictive and repressive. He's not after your pleasure and joy. If you want real life and real meaning and flourishing, you've got to disconnect from him, untether yourself from the creator, and run after all of these things. It could be X, Y, Z, but just pursue it with everything in you. Then you'll find happiness. Well, how's that working out? in our culture. I, I love the words of David Foster Wallace. This guy is not a Christian. He's not a follower of Jesus. He's one of my favorite writers uh, around today. And here's what he says. He says, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Now listen to what he says. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, 
then you will never have enough. Never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. You worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need even more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. What David Foster Wallace is saying is that when you take the gifts and you disconnect yourself from the giver and you love other things, you crave and desire other things, those things that you lavish your love on, they collapse in on you because listen, nothing, nothing can withhold the weight that only God was intended to bear. Your spouse can't hold that weight. Your kids can't hold that weight. Your friendships can't hold that weight. Sex can't hold that weight. Pleasure in this world can't hold that weight. Nothing can hold the weight that only God was intended to bear. So how is this working for us? This reality that we were created to love God, but we've actually disconnected ourselves and we've loved other things. Well, it's not working out great. It's not leading to more flourishing. It's leading to more sadness and depression. Listen to some of these stats. Major depressive disorder affects approximately 14.8 million American adults with an annual increase of about 20%. So 20% of 14.8 million every year, there's a 20% increase of people that are affected with major depressive disorder. Studies show that from 1999 to 2010, the suicide rate in America Uh, aged 35 to 64, increased by nearly 30%. That's a massive increase. Suicide is now, this is devastating, the third leading cause of death among teenagers. So it's not actually as we tell our kids, like you don't need God, you can actually just disconnect from him. Don't worry about these cravings and longings that you have, just pursue it in all of these other ways. It's not leading to more flourishing. It's not leading to more pleasure and joy. It's leading to greater and greater sadness and depression. I don't know if you've ever built something that doesn't work properly. Have you ever done that? Uh, I don't think I ever have because I don't build anything. I'm just not the handy type, right? Uh, so, but I've, I've purchased things that other people have built that have not worked properly. And the most recent purchase that I've made of something that has been a, a complete waste of time and money has been a weed eater. Um, I don't know if anyone else has trouble with their weed eater, but my weed eater has probably only worked a solid eight minutes in its entire two-year existence that I've had it. And I'm not lying to you. I have never, ever in my entire time of living in our new house, the over two years, never one time in one setting have I been able to weed eat my entire yard because my weed eater has broken every single time. And so like the level of anger and animosity I have towards my weed eater is pretty high up there. It's sitting in my garage, almost taunting me when I walk past it every day. And I want to like take all of my rage out on this dumb weed eater that has been completely useless. It was made to work and help my lawn look good. It hasn't worked. It's a piece of junk. It's totally worthless. And I'm just completely angry. And I want to just throw the thing in the trash. I am so grateful that God doesn't feel that way about the humans that he has made. God has created us for a purpose, to love him, to desire him, and we have totally 
100% failed at loving him with our entire heart, soul, and strength. And yet God's response to you and me is so ridiculous because it is not to throw us in the trash. It is not to disconnect himself from us. It is not to just pour out infinite amount of wrath on us. No, listen to what God does. What God does is he looks down and he sees us in the middle of our lovelessness and his heart is filled with affection and mercy and love and God comes to lay his life down for us. This is so crazy. 1 John 4 verse 10 says, in this is love. How do you define love? How do you think of love? In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know what that means? That means that God loved you so much that rather crushing you with his wrath, Jesus would rather go to a cross and experience the justice and the wrath that we deserved so that we could experience love and forgiveness and reconciliation and grace. God loves people that have never loved him. That's the way he is. And so this whole thing that we call Christianity, I want you to get this straight. It has nothing to do with us being the really awesome people that have done the right stuff and have loved God, and that's why we hang out together. It has been that when I was dead and when I was an enemy, when I wanted nothing to do with him, when I thought the stuff that he made was better than him, his heart was relentlessly pursuing after me, and he lovingly gave his own life so that he could win me back home. I love the words of C.S. Lewis. He talks about his conversion. If you've never read much of C.S. Lewis, you, you got to start reading C.S. Lewis. Uh, when he talks about his conversion, it reminds me of the way that God has pursued me and the way God is pursuing even some of you in this room right now. Let me just read you this quote. He says, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. Now listen to what he says. This is so, so beautiful. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, but who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking and struggling, resentful and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men and his compulsion is our liberation. Guys, what God is doing and pursuing us is the most loving thing that he could do. He is not content to let us run off and find our own way of human flourishing and find our own definition of the good life. Deuteronomy chapter six is God's gracious, loving invitation to you and to me, not to give him praise because he is in need of it, but to do the very thing that we were created to do. He's inviting us back home. He's inviting us into the good life. He's inviting us into the reason we're on the planet. 
You are not here because of you. You are here to love and desire and worship him. That's what he's doing here. He's bringing us back. He's loving us. He's pursuing us even when we have no love to offer him in return. So today, if you're here and you're not a Christian, what does all this mean to you? Here's what's actually happening right now. You might even be leaning away from God. You might even be intentionally trying to not listen or close God out or keep him at arm's length. Do that as you may. He is pursuing you relentlessly and he's not gonna stop. He's chasing you down because he's after your good. Others of you who here that are Christians, you've, you've disconnected yourself a little bit from God and you've run to other things and it's not working. Today's an invitation to come back home to God. It's an invitation to come and receive his love. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would say, come, come to Jesus today. You do not have to be cleaned up. You don't have to be righteous. You don't have to be moral. You can be as jacked up as they come because by the way, that's only the way that God takes people, right? Come as you are. If you're here and you are a Christian, here's what I'd love for you to do this week. If you would take some time alone in this busy, chaotic culture that we live in, take some time alone, get alone, whether it's over a cup of coffee or tea or a good cocktail or whatever it is that you do, and take an audit of your heart and see what it is that you love and where your affection and where your cravings and where your desire is headed. You may not love who you think you love. Take time and audit your heart. Who do you love? What God do you worship? Second thing I'd tell you to do if you're a follower of Jesus is drink deeply of God's love for you and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You won't ever be able to fully love him in return until you begin to drink deeply of his love that he's had for you. And can I just tell you very simply, we're together for the city and that means absolutely jack squat if we're together for the city, but without a love for God. Our city actually needs more people that are enamored with and awe of desiring God than anyone else. So drink deeply of his love for you. Drink deeply of his love in the gospel that right now he sees you as righteous as Jesus is, that you are forgiven. He's never gonna bring your sin up again, that you are brought back home to him to enjoy him. Drink deeply through the spiritual disciplines. This is things like, prayer and, and studying the Bible and, and, and fasting and community. These things, listen, these things don't earn God's love. These are pathways to his love. He's the fountain of living water. These are like trails to that fountain. The Bible is a trail. So run the trail to God. You don't read the Bible so that he'll love you more so that you can know all the right answers and win Bible trivia. None of that matters. You do this so that you can enjoy and know him. And the more we do that, the more we're changed. And then finally, the last thing, if you're a Christian, don't neglect the church. Don't neglect the church. You see, when Josh and I stand up here and say in a critiquing manner that the average attender of of church in Oklahoma shows up about once or twice a month and we're critiquing that, it's not because we just want more people here on a Sunday. It's not just because we're trying to make sure that we can count all of our numbers. That doesn't even matter. What matters is this, that Sunday for the Christian is an anchor in our week that shouts down love of self, that shouts down all these rival gods that we've been chasing throughout the week. And it, it's, a, it's an anchor that reminds me that I can only drift so far before God pulls me back. 
I'm able to come in and confess my sin with you. I'm able to come in and and lift my eyes off of my own world and life and onto Jesus and what he has done for me. I'm able to come and receive the bread and the wine and hear the preaching of the word and, and be reminded of what we're doing. The Lord's day, this day, Sunday, it's an anchor in the week for the Christian. And all week long, there are rival gods and people shouting at you for love, shouting at you to, to buy into this and to have your affections go here and to crave these things. And Sunday's the day where we get to come back together and be reminded this is about him. And this is the best thing that we could do. And then Monday through Saturday, the church plays an intricate role because we serve as signposts, pointing people to the way of God to the love of God. So when someone's struggling, when they're falling, when they're sinning, I'm a signpost that's reminding them this way to the love of God, this way to the love of God. That's what the church is there for. So don't neglect the church when it comes to you learning to love and live with and desire and crave this God that you are wired to experience.